Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game Changing Mega Trends, presented by SAP, helping the world run better and improve people's lives. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to help resolve some of the world's biggest challenges and to create real business impact. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, oh, come on, you know you're in the right place because this is where the best run. Let's see what the buzz is today. I have a quote from Franz Van Houten, H-O-U-T-E-N, CEO of Royal Phillips. I found him quoted in truevaluemetrics.org, whatever that website is, as a PDF of a discussion. And let me read the quote, and this will set us up nicely. He said, like all major transitions in human history, The shift from a linear to a circular economy will be a tumultuous one. It will feature pioneers and naysayers, victories and setbacks. So now you know what we're going to be talking about here. Welcome to this one of our newest series, Megatrends, Game Changing Megatrends, that dives into the world's most pressing issues and the growth opportunities they offer for society and your business. And I'm talking to all of our business listeners around the world. There were over a million and a quarter of you last year to all of our Game Changers shows, and we are so appreciative of your listenership. So, what are we talking about today? Linear economy, circular economy. Because the resources of our planet are finite, that means there's just so much we can use. We have to conserve our home for future generations that are also going to inhabit our home while purposely providing for today's growing populations. We heard the statistics. More and more people are gravitating towards cities. There will be constraints and strains on what's available. Everybody around the world is facing this issue of what do we do about the limits of resources around the planet. So how are we going to get there? Well, some people say, and my three panelists will attest to this, that we need to move from the linear economy to the circular economy. However, This requires fresh ideas. It requires people to get on board. It requires rethinking your entire value chain and product life cycles if you're in the business of creating products or anything. This is so important. So the question on the table is, are you ready? Well, we certainly are. Let me tell you who my three esteemed panelists are. We've got quite a group today. I can't wait to speak with them. In a moment, I will be introducing you to Kate Brandt. She is the Sustainability Officer at Google. We are so honored to have you, Kate. Joining her is Erin Simon, the Director of Sustainability R&B, R&D, I love R&B, R&D at World Wildlife Fund. Erin, also very honored to have you. And we're bringing back a returning guest. He is the Head of Global Sustainability Innovation Accelerator at SAP. It's Jim Sullivan. And I have the most wonderful picture in my notes here of Jim on top of a mountain somewhere in the sunshine with this great hat pulled down over his, over the top of his head, smiling at the top of the mountain. And that's always how I'm going to think of Jim Sullivan. So welcome to our panelists. Kate Brandt, you're up first. And Kate has sent us a wonderful quote from John Muir, 1838 to 1914. I don't know if Kate knows this. She probably does. But John Muir was known as John of the Mountains and father of the National Parks. He was an influential Scottish-American naturalist, author, environmental philosopher, glaciologist. I never heard that before. I guess he studied glaciers. And early advocate for the preservation of wilderness in the U.S. Here's the quote. Everybody listen up. It's beautiful. In every walk with nature, one receives far more than he seeks. Kate Brandt, it's a pleasure. How are you? I'm doing great, Bonnie. Thanks so much for having me on. 
We're delighted. Did you ever hear of the word glaciologist? I didn't even know it existed, Kate. <laughs> you know, it's news to me, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Tell me something. How did you pick this beautiful John Muir quote for our show today? Yes. Well, uh, I grew up uh, in California, not too far from where I am today in San Francisco, uh, in a little town called Muir Beach, California, and it's the <sighs> namesake of John Muir. And I spent my childhood exploring this beautiful place, its trails through the forest, its tide pools at the beach. And uh, during my childhood, I, I kind of had this realization that has really brought me to my work on the circular economy which is that the animals and plants and microbes, you know, that I got to see as I walked around as a kid in this beautiful environment, they're these consummate engineers of the world, and they truly represent billions of years of research and development. And they've created what is the original circular economy, where waste just doesn't exist, our natural world. And so that's really been a huge inspiration for me and my work. And so that's why I wanted to pick this quote from John Muir because it reminds me of my childhood and in a beautiful place that taught me a lot. Absolutely beautiful. Did you do a lot of walking in this place, Kate? Do you, do you have, do you were taking videos, uh, photos? What, what stands out to you about the beauty? What in particular impressed you the most? Yeah, I, for me, it was really all about hiking up in the hills, you know, and, uh, going down in the tide pools and checking out the starfish and the anemones. And I like to sketch and take photos. And I just have really, really fond memories of my time in that lovely place. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. You sketch. Very, very beautiful. Thank you very much. When I was a, a very young Girl Scout, I took a bird watching badge. And along the way, I started sketching birds and went to a couple of bird sanctuaries. Oh. And I was I lived in Douglaston, New York. And I have to tell you, Kate, that uh, some of my sketches of birds, I guess I used pastel pencils. Some were selected to be in the window of a little bookstore next to the elementary school where I attended. It was PS 98 in Queens, New York. And the, the bookstore was called Books and Things. And they selected a couple of my bird sketches for a display in the window on wildlife. And I can't tell you how, th- oh. I'm not much of it. I don't draw anymore, but I got to tell you, that was such a beautiful experience. So I'm, I am envious that you grew up in such a lovely place and have good memories. And thank you for bringing us the John Muir quote. There's so much depth in what he said and his attitude about it. And by the way, everybody, in case you don't know the name, he co-founded the Sierra Club. So that's that's one of his uh, one of his mantras there. So thank you, Kate. We have a lot more to learn from you coming up later in the show. And let me move slightly around the table to Ms. Erin Simon at World Wildlife Fund. I promise to say it correctly. And Erin has sent us a, an equally beautiful quote from Rabindranath Tagore, T-A-G-O-R-E, 1861 to 1941, uh, lived a little bit later than John Muir, known by his sobriquets. Those of you who don't know French sobriquet, nicknames Gurudev, Kabeguru, and Bizwakabi. He was a Bengali polymath, poet, musician, and artist from the Indian subcontinent, and he is credited with reshaping Bengali literature and music, Indian art. He's responsible for contextual modernism in the late 19th and 20th centuries, and he became the first non-European to ever win the Nobel Prize in Literature back in 1913. So here we go with the quote, you can't cross the sea merely by standing and staring at the water. Aaron Simon, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? 
I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Love this quote equally. I don't want to show any favorites here. This is a beauty. So tell me, do you follow, and am I pronouncing it right, Rabindranath Tagore? Is that the right way to say it? Rabindranath? Rabindranath Tagore? Rabindranath, I think. I, I don't know if I am Rabindranath. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that okay. I, I have a tendency to to butcher names, so I might not be the bar that you hold for that. (laughs) Well, tell me how you picked the quote for us today. We're talking circular versus linear. We're talking about conserving resources, preserving our home for future generations, and for the growing population we have right now. So tell me how this relates to our our topic, please. Yeah, I mean, I I think that this this quote spoke to me in so many ways. I, I mean, to begin with, I'm fundamentally just drawn to the water. I spend a lot of my time um rowing and sailing and um, Mm. I just love the ability to use strength and power and skill to sort of move us to where we want to go and I'm just not the kind of person who really stands on the sidelines right I I you could call it um, being naive but I'm an eternal optimist Um, with Mm. all of the complexity of the world I see a great deal of opportunity and um, so I think that's why I love the job I get to do right I I get to look at complex um, global issues. I am, every day I'm exposed to the urgency we have to act to address them, but I am inspired and energized by the individuals and organizations who are trying to solve for these problems. And my job is really to, to use my knowledge to help them to get to the change that we want to see. Um, really, that, you know, using that collective power to get us mm-hmm. where we want to go. Thank you, Erin. Very, very interesting. You said you were a rower. Do you still enjoy rowing? I do. I'm a master's rower still here in Virginia. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. I, I have to share a little story with you. I used to go to summer camp. I was I lived in on Long Island in New York and my parents sent my sister and me to various camps around the northeast and I remember at one particular camp there was a beautiful lake and you could take out a rowboat and every evening when the weather was good after dinner, I would sign out a rowboat and just row around the lake. It was peaceful and calm. I had had enough of companionship at dinner with the kids at the camp. I just wanted some solitude. The lake was beautiful. Of course, it was lined with trees all the way around. It was quite large. And you are helping to bring back such fond memories, just as Kate brought back my memories of sketching birds to, to appear in the books and things and, and in my, my badge, my bird watching badge for the Girl Scouts. So thank you very much for bringing back those memories. Um, are, there, are you rowing competitively, Erin? Is that what you do? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because um, I don't. I'm. I'm a. I'm really sort of uh, a team uh, player. I, I spend a lot of time exercising, but I'm not good at exercising by myself. And what I love about rowing is that um, it's never just me in the boat. I'm not rowing for myself. I'm rowing for my teammates. And so I think that's really always what drives me. But yeah, uh, I've been rowing competitively. Um, I, I rowed in college, and but I've been rowing with the fifth masters team for the past. 12 years so um, and rode in Masters Nationals a few years ago got to silver so yeah I, I, I would say I'm generally a competitive person when it comes to rowing 
fascinating. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That's, we have very exciting panelists. It's more than just the job, right? It's who you are, who you are. We're, we're doing a circular personality discussion here. Thank you very much, Aaron. We have a lot more to speak with you about during the show. And now he's waiting patiently. Jim, I said that to a guest a few weeks ago, and he said to me, how do you know I'm patient? So I try not to say that, but it's so tempting. So Jim has sent us a quote from Stephen Wright, and I forgot that he spells his name with a V. I thought it was a PH, Stephen Wright. So when I went to look up his bio, I couldn't find it, and then all of a sudden I saw his picture and realized it's Stephen with a V, and Stephen Wright is Stephen Alexander Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, still very much alive and well, 1955, birthday, December 6th, actually. American stand-up comedian, actor, writer, film producer, known for his distinctly lethargic voice and slow, deadpan delivery of ironic, philosophical, and sometimes nonsensical jokes, paraprostokians, non-sequiturs, anti-humor, and one-liners with contrived situations. How'd I do with that, Jim? Was that Okay. You're doing great, Bonnie. <laughs> Let me also mention that he was ranked, I don't know if you know this, the 15th greatest comedian by Rolling Stone in a list of the 50 greatest stand-up comics. He won the Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film for writing and producing The Appointments of Dennis Jennings back in 1988, and he's won two, he had two Primetime Emmy Award nominations as a producer of Louie and his biggest influences in the comedy world who influenced him were George Carlin and Woody Allen. He received a Grammy Award for Best Comedy Album in 1985 with his album called I Have a Pony on Warner Brothers Records. Let's just leave that alone. And here is the quote. My neighbor has a circular driveway. He can't get out. (laughs) Sorry, Jim. I can't do that without laughing. So tell me, Jim Sullivan, you've come down from the mountain. You've picked a wonderful quote from Stephen Wright. I love this one. And tell me, are you a big fan of Mr. Wright's? Yeah, all the uh, all the good John Muir quotes were already taken, Bonnie. So I had to find something. <laughs> I'm sure that Kate and Kate and Aaron could appreciate that. So talk to me about this. I know it's a play on words, but relate related to what's important to you about the topic, please, Jim. Yeah, so I know I know from previous shows you're a Stephen Wright fan, and if you can't have fun doing something, uh, why do it? So. Um, Three quick reasons for it. One is, uh, you know, and it was fun to hear the others' uh, quotes. I'm really uh, privileged to be uh, on a panel with Kate and Aaron because they are some uh, incredible experts in the field. But the thing that struck me about their intros is just the shared values across different places growing up and uh, how people uh, love the outdoors and want to maintain and even better that, uh, you know, for ourselves but for our children. And, uh, you know, the two points were, were fairly funny. Number one is one of my best times with my son is hiking and skiing and exploring uh, different uh, different mountains. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so I've had a long time focus on, on climate change and, you know, pre- mm-hmm. preserving our winter uh, places in nature uh, that I love. And then with Aaron's quote, uh, my daughter uh, is a competitive rower. She was at uh, Whitman. Their team has made the national uh, championships the past uh, couple of years. She's out at UW oh uh, now. So, um, you know, she spends four to five hours a day uh, in the water. And one of the things I think we'll get to, you know, is is the plastics topic around resource and just hearing her uh, come out of the water every day and talk about what's floating down the river beside her is pretty um Pretty amazing. So I think uh, I think the shared values component is something to uh, to keep in mind. And I think that Stephen Wright quote, you know, to me, the second point is it's a pretty funny anecdote for the broader circular economy topic. So 
many people are talking about it. It's a desirable feature. SAP's been doing, you know, using resources responsibly for 40 plus years. Google's been doing data transparency for, you know, their whole, uh, whole lifetime. So many are doing parts of it. But if you're going in a circle alone, you're not really getting it. It's the connectivity to the system. You need to get out of your own driveway and connect with your neighbors, get on the interstate and connect with other cities and other companies and, and everybody about this. So it's really a systemic change that we're talking about, um, you know, around all of this. And technology allows us to do that at a speed and scale uh, really never before imagined. So really excited for the uh, discussion today and uh, talk about these types of uncommon uh, collaborations we need. Thank you very much, Jim. Very, very happy. And by the way, refresh my memory. Where was that mountain where you are in your picture? You're going to have to change your picture one of these days because I'm always going to talk about it. <laughs> I have to look back. It was either in Colorado or in, in the uh, Austrian Alps, one of the, one of the two. Okay, well, it sounds like a good, good place to travel. And I just have a, a, another quick sidebar for the three of you. Um, I, I raised my children in Eugene, Oregon, which was a beautiful environment, then moved back to, where did we move to? Long Island, New York, which wasn't too bad. Uh, a lot a lot of building, as you all probably know, but enough country. And, and uh, after my mom passed away a year and a half ago in New York, I moved down here to Durham to be near my daughter, who lives about 20 minutes from where I am now. But the day I arrived, I think you'll all appreciate that the day I arrived, to go house hunting. My daughter picked me up at the airport. It was midnight, and uh, she said, Mom, I have news for you. She said, she and her husband, who was with her in the car, she said, we just bought 44 acres of rolling hills in Tennessee. We're moving and retiring there in a few years. And I said, what? I, I just got here. I just got off the plane. I'm coming to live near you. And she said, that's great, but we're not going to be here that long. So they have bought a beautiful piece of property. They're getting a tractor. They just built a small house slash apartment slash garage. They're building furniture for it and back to the land. Kate, isn't that a lovely thing? Should I should I be very happy for them and not for me so much? <laughs> oh, it is lovely, but maybe you can join them there part of the time. It sounds like a nice place to be. <laughs> It sure does. It's five hours away. It'll have to be a long weekend, but thank you very much for that. So let's go around the table now. Kate Brand, while I have you on the line, let's find out a little bit more about you. Kate, three questions. Number one, where in the world are you today? Number two, what's your favorite drink? And that's because our format is the same on all Game Changers shows. Uh, we started with Coffee Break with Game Changers, and i just like to know, what's your favorite drink that powers you? I see your beautiful smile in your PR picture here. I can hear the energy and passion for the topic in your voice. So what what powers you to be so passionate about this topic? And number three, tell us what your role at Google is, please. Absolutely. Uh, So I'm joining you today from my office here in San Francisco, right by the bay. I, I too, am a lover of water, and I always get energized by looking out the window at our beautiful San Francisco Bay. Um, what is in my cup? I am drinking a green smoothie. Uh, this mm. is something that uh, I got from our Google Cafe here, and this is actually a circular smoothie. Uh, we use leafy green trimmings and leftover oatmeal, and we blend those into delicious smoothies, and it uh, provides a new use for food that might otherwise get wasted and makes a really nutritious, great breakfast. So that is what I am sipping on this morning. Sounds um, lovely. Then, yes, yes go ahead. Mm-hmm. 
I'm the sustainability officer here at Google, so I have the great honor of leading sustainability across our worldwide operations, our products, and our supply chain. Uh, and I work across many different parts of our business, our data centers, our real estate supply chain, and many of our product teams uh, to ensure that we're strategically advancing sustainability and the circular economy. And uh, before I came here to Google, I served in the Obama administration. I was the federal chief sustainability officer at the White House and also had roles at Department of Energy and the Pentagon and also working in the sustainability and clean energy space. Give me a second while I catch my breath. I didn't didn't realize your credentials were quite so vast and very, very impressive. What was it like working on this at the government level, if I can ask you, Kate, without getting into any politics, please? Question is, are people embracing the idea of circular economy? Is it something that, as I mentioned in my intro, it will have its ups and its downs, it will have its its, uh, proponents, and it will have its naysayers, it will have challenges and and some smooth road ahead. What was the status of Circular in those days? Yeah, I mean, I think what I particularly appreciated about doing this work in the federal government was the sheer scale. You know, the U.S. government is the single largest user of energy in the world. They have 360,000 buildings, 650,000 vehicles. Uh, So the opportunity to drive change at, at scale is really tremendous. I will say, you know, my, my time in, in the federal government ended back in 2015, and I think that was really a very early stage of circular economy work at, in the U.S. as we've come to know it. So we d- were doing great work around energy efficiency, around designing out waste, um, around waste reduction from a material perspective. But I would say we weren't quite at a place where I would say there was a circular economy strategy, but certainly a strong sustainability strategy um, was in place. And that was what was exciting for me as I came to Google uh, about three and a half years ago. You know, I was really interested in not only the opportunity to work on sustainability in Google's operations, which are, which are also global uh, not quite on the scale of the U.S. government, but um, but also the role of technology in in driving change and and circular economy is something that we were just starting to think about back in 2015, mm-hmm. and it's now really become core to how we think about our infrastructure, our operations, our products, and our culture. So it's been it's been a fun journey at doing doing this work in in the federal space, and now coming to the private sector and and really getting to look at the intersection point of technology and sustainability, which I know we'll get to talk about a little bit later. Thank you, Kate, so much. We are very honored to have you. And now let's move around the table. Aaron Simon, you're up next. Same three questions. Number one, where are you today? Number two, what powers you? And number three, tell us what you do at the World Wildlife Fund, what the fund is, and a little bit about your background. I know you have a fascinating background. Go ahead, Aaron. Uh, yeah, so I'm calling in today from Phoenix, Arizona, uh, from a, a conference. And I have in my cup today coffee. Um, my daughter um, will tell you that my favorite two drinks are coffee and beer. Um, but at this moment in my mug, it's coffee. And it's actually um, a fog cutter coffee, which is a small hmm. roastery um, you can find in Cape Charles on the bay. Um, it's called the Eastern, uh, the Eastern uh, Shore Coastal Roasters. And we discovered this roastery um, when we were sailing the Chesapeake. In September, and I think sailing is actually a stretch because we had no wind, but we were motoring around <laughs> in a sailboat, 
And we decided instead of motoring, we should just stop and explore this little tiny city, which is sort of on the like farthest southern eastern part of the bay, and um, discovered this local shop and 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 this coffee, and we're really delighted. Also desperate because we'd run out of coffee on the boat, but um, yeah, <laughs> we've been ordering it in five pound bags since. So <laughs> I. Yeah, I think it, I think we found ourselves something. So yeah, that's what I'm drinking this morning. Well, Erin, I'm uh, on their website. Yeah. I just want to tell you, I'm on their website. I'm looking at the bag of coffee. I'm looking at the price. It's a dark Italian roast. It says bold, B-O-L-D, all in caps, but never bitter. Very all in caps, popular Indonesian, African, Central, and South American beans. Tasty and flavorful as an espresso. Mm. And it says, cut that morning fog. Our dark house roast blends. Big beefy coffees for that bold cup of wake up that you're looking for. Jamie's go-to brew when he stops by the Machapango Trading Company. And you can actually... Add a custom label to your coffee. Did you know that, Erin? Oh, I did not. I love that. Um, yeah, no, it's a kick in the pants, though. I want to warn you, I can't drink my normal amount of coffee with this because I get like this shake. It's that. So much I can ident- I can identify. <laughs> but you can, you can do this at CoastalRoast.com and just look for a fog cutter and you can find where you can actually order it. Coarse drip espresso. Espresso or whole bean, and add your label for an extra dollar fifty. Woohoo! Go for it, Aaron. Now, Aaron, tell us. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this was just too good. Aaron, talk to me. Tell me about your background and what you do. Yeah, so I am the director of sustainability uh, research and development uh, at World Wildlife Fund U.S., and I sit on the private sector engagement team. And that's a large mouthful to just say that. Myself and my team of amazing scientists, uh, our, our role is to translate that science and that those complex um, systems for companies so that they know um, how to engage and how to drive change for the, our broader global mission of, around um, protecting the world's resources for both people and um, species. And so... Um, and, and I think within that team, we lead a lot of work on um, packaging and material science. And so that's where mm-hmm. my background comes in. I Before I joined the Panda eight years ago, I was at uh, Sheila Packard for 10 years as a packaging engineer and material scientist and uh, doing a lot of design um, work and R&D and production and logistics um, and so uh, when I came to WWF, it was to establish a platform for engaging with companies on packaging material science and figuring out really the role that these materials play in conservation at large. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty great, actually. It brings together my greatest passions, I think. Thank you very much. And you and I spoke on our prep call about the field of being a packaging engineer. And I think I was asking you if many women are in that field. What's the status these days? I should have done more research since you asked me that question. But I think like, you know, I think like any math and science field, sometimes we find that there are less women in it. And that's really unfortunate because, um, you know, I feel like there's, you know, a, a great deal of opportunity there for growth, and especially with the growth of STEM in the coming years. I, I mean, I have a daughter, so um, my husband and I, I think I was telling you, are constantly trying to push her towards that because she comes from two engineers, and um, we want her to be able to take that natural aptitude that she has for understanding complexity and science and math and, and use it to help solve problems because we need the next generation to really dig in. So, Thank you very uh, yeah. much. 
Very proud to have you on the panel as well. Jim Sullivan, you're next. Where are you today? What do you love to drink? You have a new drink for me, I hope. And, and what are you doing these days at the head of Global Sustainability Innovation Accelerator, SAP? That's a big title, Jim. Go ahead. Hey. Thanks, uh, thanks, Bonnie. So um, I am sitting in Glen Echo, uh, Maryland, out of my uh, home office uh, today, so just over the D.C. Uh, border. Um, I don't, since Erin already took coffee, I'll, I'll go with her other choice, beer. How about, uh, I was going to say Bud Light, but let's, uh, let's not go with that. Um, let's go with Rothaus Pilsner, uh, which is a local beer brewed in the Germany Black Forest. Um, near where our corporate headquarters are, and it's got a pretty clear ingredient label, water, barley, malt, hops, and yeast, and it's, it's absolutely delicious, Bonnie, so I would, I would highly recommend it. I've um, got it, but the website wants to know if I'm over 16. Should I tell them yes so I can get in, Jim? I think, <laughs> I think you should go for it, but I, I wanted to give I'm you here. a quick anecdote on the CT yes. topic. So. Um, ingredient transparency is not a new thing. Uh, Germany required this in 1516 uh, with a beer purity law, and they've actually had to update and change this uh, in the 1800s when yeast was discovered to allow yeast uh, to be added to um, to beer. So there there have been aspects of circular economy in terms of ingredient transparency and material uh, transparency going on for more than 500 years, and um, to tie this back to the, the Bud Light comment at the very beginning, I don't know, there was a game on a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody on the call watched it. The football uh, thing, Super Bowl, I think it's called. Did anybody see that? <laughs> yawn, yawn, yawn. Yes, we saw it. <laughs> so um, uh, Bud Light did this advertisement about no corn syrup, you know, taking shots at their uh, competitors around, you know, natural ingredients and what, um, they're using. So I think it's, it's interesting to me for two reasons. One is around the use of resources. You know, uh, should corn be food? Should it be food for our food, uh, for animal feed? Should it be sweetener? Um, are we using it for biofuels? So there's, you know, again, going back into the systems discussion. Um, but the other thing that was interesting they just announced yesterday is there's been a slowdown in beer sales uh, significantly. Millennials are drinking a lot less. They're moving towards other beverages of choice, and there was going to be a group of beer producers, uh, Budweiser's and Coors and Heineken, getting together to, to do joint ads around the industry and how to promote, you know, this as a, as, a, as a lifestyle choice. And as of this ad at the Super Bowl, now Coors, Miller Coors, has pulled out of this group. So it, to me, it's also an interesting discussion on coopetition. It's you know, who are our friends? Who are our competitors? Are we losing market share, you know, versus other people in our category versus people outside of our category? And how well do we uh, work together? So I'd encourage you to take a look at the commercial and some of the um, the feedback from that because it's one of these interesting uh, market dynamics playing out right now. Very interesting. And by the way, I did get into their website. I, I had to force myself to say I'm over 16. It says Rothaus Pils, P-I-L-S. I guess that's shorthand for Pilsner. is fermented from bottom fermenting yeast that's been developed in-house, maturing for roughly four weeks. It's robust in elegant flavors and high resins, R-E-Z-E-N-Z, are cultivated. Resins is the term for the refreshing feeling produced by the carbon dioxide in beer. It has alcohol 5.1% by volume and will 
we'll leave that one alone. Jim, thank you. Always happy to have you on the show. Guess what? We're not going to take a break because we're half we're, we're past the halfway mark, and I don't want to lose any time here. We have such interesting information my guests sent me before the show. So, Kate Brandt, I'm looking at your notes here, and let's get down to the bottom line of defining the circular economy. You say in one of your notes to me, circular economy is grounded in three key principles, designing out waste, keeping products and materials in use, and transitioning to renewable energy. Kate, why don't you give us a little more explanation about this, and then we'll run quickly around the table and see what Aaron and Jim want to add. Go ahead. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I, I think that the topic of the circular economy is, is you know, a critical one, and I'm thrilled we're here to talk about it today. And I also think it's sometimes a little bit hard for people to wrap their minds around. And, you know, I think something that's been really important to us at Google is taking this theory into practice. Um, and I, I think, of course, you know, for me, my, my personal connection to the circular economy is really rooted in what I was saying at the beginning of the show about my connection to nature and really nature being the original circular system. But what I think is really tremendous about the circular economy approach, you know, is the economy and circular economy. And mm-hmm. it's been projected by a study that Accenture did a few years ago uh, that the circular economy could generate $4.5 trillion of new economic output by 2030. So what the challenge we've really put to ourselves at Google is how do we harness this tremendous opportunity and uh, implement it within our own business? And then, of course, also what's the role of our technology in enabling this transition for everyone? But on that first piece of what does this look like inside of Google, um, you know, as as we've thought about this, it can seem like a fairly distant, uh, the data center, for example, you know, Google, we own and operate 14 data centers around the world. And these are huge, you know, very modern facilities, rows upon rows of servers. They can feel pretty distant from the natural world, from all that dirt and decay, you know, that I used to go and play in when I was a kid in Muir Beach. Um, but really, we think it's not so different. And so, you know, those three principles you mentioned of designing out waste, keeping products and materials in use, and uh, renewable energy have now become really core to how we think about operating our data centers. Um, And I think something important to note and related to what Jim was just talking about um, is, you know, energy is the greatest input into our system. So just like a natural system has inputs and outputs, so does a data center, and that biggest input Mm -hmm. that we have uh, is energy. And so designing out energy waste has been really critical for us. And so one thing that we have been doing is applying machine learning to optimize the controls in our data centers. And we've seen something really tremendous, which is a 30% reduction in energy use. And basically what our mm. team did to achieve that is that they took um, historical sensor data like temperature, power, and pump speeds and then they use this to create an AI-powered efficiency recommendation system. So really, really powerful. But equally, even with all these efficiency measures, you know, we still use a tremendous amount of energy. And so we're committed to matching 100% of the energy we use with renewable sources. So again, similar to the, the BUD conversation we were just having with Jim and we, hmm. we've done this. We are now uh, the largest corporate purchaser of renewable energy. We have three gigawatts of wind and solar on contract. So that is more than it takes to power the city of San Francisco, where I'm joining you from today. Wow. Um, and then the third principle for us is really, you know, keeping our uh, products and materials in use. And so the way that we have thought about that in a data center is, 
taking components from old servers, and then we're using those to upgrade our machines. And then we're building remanufactured machines with refurbished parts as well. And then when we have, you know, equipment that's left over that we don't have use for anymore, we're wiping it clean, and then we're selling it on secondary markets. Um, and through that practice, we've sold over 2.1 million units a year, and then we're saving hundreds of millions of dollars. So again, that economy and the circular economy, not only far less resources needed, but a great business case for the work. So that's just sort of a quick insight into, you know, how we're, how we're thinking about this work within Google's operations. Uh, and then we're also really excited about the role of technology more broadly in accelerating this transition for everyone. And I think we may get to a little bit later in the show some really exciting work that we've been doing uh, with Jim's team over at SAP um, to have host a competition for social entrepreneurs in the circular economy space. So I'll tease that and maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. Thank you very much. We have about 18 minutes left to the show, so we're going to see if we can get to that very quickly. Aaron Simon, love to get your thoughts on how Kate described and defined a circular economy. Agree, disagree? Want to add? I agree. I mean, um, as I was listening to her three points and thinking about, you know, specifically around the focus of plastics, the three asks that we give to companies are around, you know, designing out things you don't need, um, making sure that whatever you do need, you make in a really responsible and sustainable way, but also make sure that it's coming back. Um, and so there's just a lot of overlap with that um, in, in sort of the sort of technical um, industry that she's talking about and sort of the more consumer good world that we have been um, really um, in um, or at the forefront of this sort of plastic waste issue. So I, I do agree. Um, one thing that sort of, I was as I was listening to her, I was thinking this sounds like really... Um, you know, exciting stuff, the machine learning, um, some of the investments you guys have made around um, refurbishing parts. And so I was wondering, um, there you have a lot that you could probably bring to your industry um, or to other industries to share those learnings. And um, I know we're going to get into the design challenge, but what, what other unique partnerships are you engaging in to sort of help take what you guys have proven to to work so well in Google and, and help others to sort of raise, come to that same level that you're at. Okay. I want to make yeah. sure Jim gets – Kate, why don't you answer, and then Jim will, Jim will join us. So, Kate, thoughts, please? Perfect. Yeah, no, thank you, Erin. And, and I completely agree, and I think going back to Jim's uh, great point from his wonderful quote at the top of the show, you know, this, this work requires partnership. This is a – change that we all will need to make and Mm -hmm. we see that as absolutely critical so we are um, trying to always share our lessons so a lot of that work I just described around our work um, you know repurposing our data center hardware the work we're doing on renewable energy we publish white papers we share that work widely so that others can learn from what we've done and and of course we also share what hasn't worked and, and you know how we've overcome that so that is a really strong ethos of our program, but also I think partnerships are absolutely critical. Um, and so we have developed a partnership with a great NGO out in the UK, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and they bring together businesses um, from around the world to partner on these issues. So we've done a lot of great work through that forum. And then, of course, most recently uh, in partnership with, with Jim's team over at SAP, we've launched this contest for social entrepreneurs 
um, that we're inviting them to submit proposals, and they can then uh, tell us how they want to utilize Google technology, SAP technology, to advance the circular economy. Um, so we're always looking for new opportunities to bring more folks into this work and to accelerate the transition to a circular economy for everyone. Thank you very much. Good thoughts. So Jim Sullivan, join us. What do you think? Yeah, really, really excited to uh, partner with uh, with Kate and uh, and the Google team. I think um, on the circular economy uh, topic, I mean, biological systems have been circular uh, forever. If people aren't familiar with uh, her, I would encourage people to check out uh, Janine Banias' work uh, around this and biomimicry. Uh, really, really great um, stuff. But the, the bottom line, Bonnie, is, uh, you know, we need, uh, we're using the resources, non-renewable resources of uh, 1.7 uh, planets right now, and that will be up to uh, two planets by 2030 if we do do something about it, um, one of which uh, we don't happen to have handy. So uh, we really need to work together in these collaborations, um, fundamentally work on uh, changing systems. And to Kate's point, I think tangible projects and tangible examples of how to do this are vitally uh, important. I'll share two mm-hmm. of ours, um, yes. and they tend to be around uh, traceability of assets and Materials. One is really on ocean to table is how do you trace, you know, where the fish are coming from the tuna? How do you know, uh, it's caught responsibly that the fishermen are, are, um, you know, getting the materials they need to earn a livelihood that there's not, uh, transfers at sea, uh, from illegal fishing to, uh, to legal fishing to kind of, uh, swap those things. So we, we're in an age where technology blockchain uh, satellite imagery, geolocation, all of those things, machine learning based on ship patterns uh, can be used to really uh, allow a level of traceability that, um, you know, wasn't possible even a few years ago. And then for uh, industrial assets, really digital twins, this idea of creating a digital copy of a physical system and how you can do that from logistics to um you know, for all uh, all physical assets. And one concrete example of that would be uh, these shipping containers that go all over the world. What you're able to do is by having a digital twin of those or a digital copy, instead of shipping empty containers into a lot of places, you can do a container swap, a contractual swap in technology to trade, um, you know, for various locations. So it's the idea of virtualization. How do you uh, move things around in the digital world to avoid doing it in the uh, in the physical world using uh, extra resources. So, a um, couple concrete examples, and uh, looking forward to having uh, a lot more uh, from the inputs to this uh, this contest. Thank you very much. Fascinating. And speaking of concrete examples, Aaron Simon, uh, the third note you sent me in your roundtable statements talks about one dump truck full of plastic waste enters our oceans every minute. Once you finish that that uh, thought, Aaron, I want you to give this statistic if you don't mind because it's very powerful. Aaron Simon? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's pretty overwhelming when you think about it, right? That one dump truck a minute is accumulating to 8 million tons of plastics entering our ocean every year. Um, and so that that's uh, it's overwhelming to think about, especially when you think about how plastics are um, not a material that breaks down quickly. And so they persist in the environment and, and, and therefore sort of wreaking havoc on the ecosystems and, the, and those who depend on them. So that's both, um, that's both species and humans. Uh, we know that you know, 800 different species of um, 
have come in contact with plastic. That's either through eating it, getting tangled up in it, or having it disrupt their habitat. Mm -hmm. Um, While we're still learning about how that actually affects them, uh, we know that those interactions aren't good. And so I think in order to emerge successful from this crisis, uh, we need to really start with the root cause of the problem. Uh, Science shows us that that 80% of marine litter, and when I say marine litter, I'm talking about the plastic waste that is either trashed by people or leaked from waste management systems, enters into our ocean from land-based sources. That means the plastic trash we see in our oceans today is coming from a broken waste management system. And understanding that really um, helps us to think, rethink our relationship with plastic, right? Not just look at how we use it, but also how we manage it when we're done with it. And I think that can apply to a lot of things, right? When we talk about plastics and we talk about it in the this discussion that we're having more broadly around the circular economy, um, this is just sort of the poster child of it right now. But there's uh, the same sort of theories around how you resolve plastic waste can um, can be used in, in, in more circular thinking in, in all the materials we use, right? We need to go beyond sort of just addressing one part of the system to solve the problem and think about all of the parts of the system that need to change in order to sort of create those more efficient, more connected material systems. Um, and we need everyone to be involved, right? We can't just ask companies to solve for this problem. We need to use companies to help us to catalyze the change not only in their own ecosystems, but to inspire change in their supply chain, in their industry, um, but then also inspire the other key stakeholders, governments, consumers, cities, to sort of play key roles in this. So, um, you know, I think we're going to really need um, a a really holistic approach to solve for this. And I think um, just hearing, you know, SAP and Google talk about some of the efforts they're doing, you can tell that there's leadership out there. Right, that you can tell that there are there's a, a great deal of engagement on this issue, um, and so WWF is trying to pull that together and, and sort of help guide that in a more um, uh, consistent framework, helping you know others to change way, the way they think about it, um, and to empower more companies to sort of deploy these proven organizational strategies um, and new collaborations that companies like Google and SAP are putting out there, so that we can rethink. Our, our whole relationship with these materials in a way that creates more efficient systems. Thank you very much, Erin. Good points. We're almost at our predictions round, but Jim Sullivan, I see something very important in your notes here. We have just enough time for you to talk about this. And then, Kate, please get ready for your 60-second prediction. I have a feeling I'm going to predict we have to do part, part two because we've got too much more to talk about. Jim told me in his notes, Earth Overshoot Day marks the date when humanity's demand for ecological resources and services in a given year exceeds what the Earth can regenerate in that year. Where does this come from? Who organizes it? Who does Decided it. Where did it, who started it, Jim? Yeah, it's it's really what I mentioned, Bonnie. It's a group called the Global Footprint Network, but it's the idea of taking a look at at what is regenerative within the biosphere within uh, within our lifetime. So that was where the data came from. You know, we currently need uh, 1.7 planets. You know, we're projected to need. Um, mm-hmm. Two planets. So, would encourage you to uh, to take a look at the the data on Global uh, Footprint Network. Um, I, I really wanted to follow up for a couple of seconds on uh, Aaron's comment too. Yeah, go ahead. I think that, yeah, the the change I think I'm seeing there is really just the way value is created and measured is changing, and I think that's a key component 
to how we begin to solve this problem. So in the past, there was transaction around a product and, you know, there's value capture in a moment and consumers and businesses are really looking to work with companies that share their overall values. So it's moving from, you know, as we said in the beginning, a shared values-based approach rather than just the value of an individual transaction. And I think really Mm -hmm. that's the key to a lot of the social enterprises, a lot of the innovation we're seeing here is finding innovative ways to uh, to capture that value leakage uh, into these more circular models. Thank you very much. We're going to have to go into our predictions round officially right now. Kate Brandt at Google, talk to me. I can give you 60 seconds. I know you'll probably take a little more, and we will be grateful for that. We'd love to know what you think will change. Do we have any optimism about what we're talking about, circular economy taking hold, making the rounds, getting ingrained, the concept of shared responsibility? Jim was just talking about that. Is it catching on? What's going to change about this topic? Let's say... Kate, between uh, 2020 and 2025, if that's okay with you. Go ahead, please. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mentioned a little bit before the work you know, that we've been doing at Google of applying um, machine learning and artificial intelligence to accelerate our own circular economy work. And I am tremendously bullish on this potential of you know, technology more broadly to accelerate this transition, but I think particularly AI holds huge potential and I'm really interested in, you know, three ways I think that AI is going to have a major impact. The first is designing products that last. You know, I think one thing that's mm-hmm. come through in this conversation is we really need to rethink the way that we design products so that they can maintain their value over a much longer period of time. Um, and we're, we're already seeing some really interesting ways that AI is enabling this. Um, one of my favorites is the European Space Agency has this project on accelerated metallurgy. And they're uh, working with manufacturers, universities, and designers to use AI to more quickly and efficiently produce and test new materials. Um, and, and then they're able to substitute harmful chemicals, create more durable products. So I think tremendous opportunity to design products that last. Second, optimizing our infrastructure. You know, as we build products, Instead of just consuming and disposing of them, you know, Aaron was just talking about this tremendous challenge we have around plastics. We can create better infrastructure that allows us to use our products over and over again. Um, and we're seeing, again, AI helping to improve the process to sort recycled materials and to disassemble products. And then third, I think maximizing new business models. Um, you know, Jim was talking about this, the role of innovation. Similar business models need to shift to prioritize this elimination of waste. That's a key principle we've been talking about today. So I think this really means an emphasis on new business models like subscription models or leasing rather than owning products. Mm-hmm. And again, I see a huge role for AI there, increasing the value of business models by combining real-time and historical data that can help us make better decisions about pricing, demand prediction, um, so, so tremendous opportunity there. So that's my crystal ball for you. Thank you. That was quite a crystal ball, and I think those are reclaimable crystals in there. They will last forever, Kate, <laughs> and ever and ever and ever. Good choice. Aaron Simon, 60 seconds for you. Go ahead. Please give me your prediction. Yeah, I think that um, we, similar to like the foodie movement, we're going to see the a sim- similar movement with people around waste and the way we value it. So this shift where society values all materials, it's 
seems sort of crazy and uncouth to throw something away, um, right? It's going to, which will drive to sort of those systematic changes that are needed around better collection and sorting processing um, because people will value that better. They'll have a better understanding of where stuff comes from, right? Which is a lot of what the foodie movement started to do that farm to fork and therefore understand that there's a limited amount of that if we don't manage that correctly. Um, so I think it's going to, it's going to just be this sort of movement for everybody to be more accountable for what they're doing. Um, either that or aliens are going to come and teach us the secret of renewable energy. One of the two, but I'm, I'm going on the first one. <laughs> oh, you never know, do you? They could be among us right now. We have no idea. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron Simon. Jim Sullivan, I saved 60 seconds for your prediction. Please go ahead. Awesome. I am a uh, technology optimist, uh, as are the other two, so I I see a bright uh, future on this in terms of identifying and capturing uh, additional business value from these types of models. And I think there's huge potential in merging operational data, which is how businesses are making decisions today, with experience data from customers, employees, and and really predicting where business needs to be to to be agile for the future. So let me give... um, one example of that is is really as business moves to adding secondary materials into their input streams, in a linear model, you have full control over that. You can say what quality I want, what quantity I want, what level of um, you know delivery I want, what price it all it all becomes a uh, a very you know uh, distinct supply chain model. If you're using secondary materials, what if the quality is not as expected? What if the quantity is not as expected? Mm-hmm. What if it shows up in different locations yeah. that you expect? How do you map your business uh, to make sure you're maintaining profitability with those uncertainties and some of the inputs into, uh, into that? So that's really where bringing this experience data, what are customers demanding, where are they demanding it, and where is the waste going to go, and how do we recapture that becomes uh, vital. So I'm, I'm optimistic on that, and... Uh, uh, really excited to partner with uh, with Google with WWF to uh, to see all these great ideas that the social entrepreneurs have as well, and hopefully um, uh, scale those over the next uh, next few years. Thank you, Jim. Very insightful and thoughtful as always. I want to thank my engineer extraordinaire, Aaron Keller at the Business Channel for getting us on the air and keeping us there except for when my line dropped. Not not anybody's fault. It's a beautiful day here in Durham. Who knows how renewable the energy is? We won't go there. You've been listening to Game Changing Megatrends presented by SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham and here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Enough already. Go out and be a game changer today. Just like Kate Brandt at Google just like Aaron Simon at the World Wildlife Fund, WWF, and, of course, just like Jim Sullivan at SAP. Big shout-out to Tom Conan at SAP for putting together this spectacular panel. Thank you, Tom, for your hard work. Talk to you tomorrow on Coffee Break with Game Changers, 11 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Business Channel. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Game Changing Megatrends, presented by SAP, the best run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.